Well, good morning again, church. Glad that you're with us. Um, as many of you know, the last several weeks we have been teaching through the book of Revelation, and we're currently in a series that's looking at the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And this week we're starting the third chapter of Revelation, and we'll be looking at the letter to the church at Sardis that Jesus sends to them. Uh, Just as way of introduction, some of you may remember the 1999 film, The Sixth Sense. It was uh, one of my favorites back in the day. Uh, It was from director M. Night Shyamalan, who's now famous for a lot of uh, twists and and plot twists that are very clever. And uh, the movie, I think a lot of you have probably seen it, but the movie starred Bruce Willis and child actor Haley Joel Osment. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it, you've had 21 years to see it at this point, so I don't feel too bad about uh, ruining it. Uh, basically, Willis's character is going around and he's helping this young boy who sees ghosts by assisting him in solving the mysteries of their deaths and thereby resolving a lot of things for their families that are left behind. Uh, in the shocking twist at the end, Willis's character realizes that he himself has actually been dead since nearly the beginning of the movie, uh, which allows for resolution for him and healing for his widowed wife. Um, And I wonder, as we look at this text this morning, if the church at Sardis found themselves in that same state of shock as they received this letter from Jesus and discovered that they too were dead. So let's look at the text for today. We're looking at Revelation chapter 3, looking at verses one through six. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father, And before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I have three points this morning as we look at the text. Uh, Verses one and two we'll call the prognosis. The end of verse two to verse three we'll call the prescription. And then verses four through six we'll call the promise. And while we go through each point, we'll also be looking at deeper hints as to the root cause of this spiritual death that was going on at the church in Sardis. So point number one, the prognosis. Look again at verses one and two. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So just with these, as with these other seven letters to be seven churches, Jesus introduces himself with this self-description, and it's tailored specifically to the church that he's writing to. 
So here Jesus introduces himself as him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So we know already from the introduction in Revelation chapter 1 that the seven stars are the seven angels that watch over the seven churches. He also mentions the seven spirits of God, and these are a little more mysterious here, but we've already actually seen them in Revelation chapter 1 as well. If you look back to chapter 1, when John is introducing the letter, he writes, starting in verse 4, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now remember, as Trevor introduced Revelation, we talked about how this whole book is a book of apocalyptic prophetic literature. And because of this, it contains a lot of symbols and visions that convey real truths, but in very shocking ways to get their attention. So these seven spirits function as a sort of heavenly entourage for Jesus that we see in in chapter one, but they likely represent the Holy Spirit uh, or perhaps the Holy Spirit at work in the seven churches. Uh, The number seven, it's a number that signifies completion and fullness. These seven churches have been chosen as an audience, and while they're written to real audiences and they're addressing real concerns that are going on in the church, they're likely also representative of the fullness of the church that God is establishing on earth. So in the same way, we can see in this introduction that these seven spirits of God show that Jesus has the fullness of the Holy Spirit at his command, and he's ready to give the spirit to the churches in his fullness if the churches have an ear to hear. Jesus then tells them that he knows their works. Occasionally in these letters, Jesus tells them that he knows something else, um, such as, I know your tribulation, as we saw in the letter to Smyrna, or I know where you dwell in the church to Pergamum. But here, as with all the rest of the others, he is examining their works, the fruit of the church. And his prognosis is this, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, to think historically about Sardis for a minute, uh, there was a large hill near Sardis where they had constructed a number of these tumulus mounds, or burial mounds, if you will. And this, they called this area the necropolis, or literally the city of the dead. It was a really common feature for a lot of ancient cities to have a necropolis, But Sardis had some of the largest tumuli in the ancient world, and therefore it was very likely that they closely associated this feature with their city. And certainly the original audience would have been aware of this feature and uh, would have called this to mind. Uh, I'll also get into this in in greater detail um, in the next point, but they also had a, a protected upper part of the city that was on a separate hill, and they called this the Acropolis, And uh, as I said, I'll talk about that in the next point more. Um, It's as if Jesus is saying here, thinking about the city and the Acropolis and the Necropolis, he's saying, you think you're great and mighty up here, but you actually have a lot more in common with the dead people over here. Part of the challenge with this letter to Sardis is that there's no definitive answer that's just spelled out in the text as to the root cause of their spiritual death. However, I think if we step back and we look at these seven letters in context with one another, 
we can make some interesting observations about the church at Sardis. So let's consider for a minute a few of the common themes that we've seen throughout these seven letters already and some of the themes that we'll continue to see. So persecution is a big one, right? Um, There's opposition and threats coming from outside the church, from the Romans and the Jews. And these are clearly creating a lot of turmoil and real suffering and death for many. And we don't see persecution mentioned here. Might Sardis have been experiencing it, perhaps? But unlike Smyrna and Philadelphia, which we'll see next week, it isn't mentioned here at all. Other common themes that we see in the seven letters, we've talked about this already, sexual immorality, heresy, specifically from the Nicolaitans. There were threats that were coming in this kind of a way from within the church. Again, this isn't mentioned here in any way. It seems then that Sardis is in a unique position maybe similar to the final letter that we'll read from the the church at Laodicea uh, to the church at Laodicea. They're not experiencing internal threats, and they're not experiencing external threats. And while you might think that would result in a thriving church within the city, that's not the case. Um, That was the reputation, but the reality that Jesus shocks them with here is that they are dead. Now, this reminds me of, of Jesus' assessment of the Pharisees that we read in Matthew 23, verse 27. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also appear outwardly righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The Pharisees had an obsession with the outward appearance and the religious adherence, obeying the law in every kind of a way, having long prayers, wearing their long robes. But inside, Jesus said that they were dying. So note, too, as we look at these two verses, the different assessments that Jesus gives of the church at Sardis. He says initially in verse 1, you are dead. And then he goes on in verse 2, to tell them to strengthen what remains and is about to die. Though the seeming paradox of about to die and you are dead, I think it conveys some deep gospel truth for us, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Apart from the Holy Spirit's work in us, we don't even have the ability to come to Christ and repent. The only way for us to revive our hearts as individuals and as a church is through the work of Christ on our behalf. And in this, Jesus recognizes that they still have some hope as he says that they are about to die. So even while they're dead, they aren't quite dead yet. And this power of the Holy Spirit, as we know, is really good at making dead things come to life. Romans 8 verse 11, Paul writes, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The very power of the Holy Spirit is what raised Christ from the dead and is what is at work within us when we are in Christ. So just one quick point of application here. Are there things within you that are about to die or even already dead and need resurrecting? Maybe you already know these things and while you have a reputation of being alive, there's a part of you that's hiding behind a wall and decaying. 
I think the call of Jesus to Sardis is relevant for us today. Recognize this for what it's worth. Go ahead and accept the death certificate in this area of your life and give it over to the Holy Spirit who can raise things from the dead. Maybe you're walking around like like Bruce Willis in that movie and you aren't aware that you're dead inside. We need the Holy Spirit to reveal our sin and our apathy. Pray for God to make you aware of what might be dying inside you and open yourself up to others around you in the church to speak into your life and help you in the process. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. No one can bear your burdens unless you offer them up in a repentant heart for others to bear. Which brings us to point two, the prescription. Let's look at the end of verse two again uh, to verse three. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So let's go back to that historical city of Sardis for a minute. Um, I already referenced the Acropolis briefly. And uh, let me explain it a bit further. The original city of Sardis was built up on a really high mound that had nearly like sheer cliffs on every side except for one side on the south. And at the height of it, uh, it was 1,500 feet, so about a quarter of a mile. Um, it was a pretty, pretty tall cliff there. Uh, they, ha- they called the entire upper city the Acropolis, which translates literally to high city. And uh, it was an intimidating structure and um, such, such good positioning that many in the ancient world considered it to be impenetrable. However, there were two times in history that the city was overtaken. Um, just for context here, from 1200 BC until this event that I'm about to describe, which was 547 BC, the whole area in Asia Minor where these churches were was called the Kingdom of Lydia. And uh, in 547 BC, um, the Lydian king, Croesus, had invaded the Persians it's, uh, over in the Middle East. And the Persian king, Cyrus the Great, was out for revenge because of this. Um, and so Sardis at the time was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia, uh, partly because of this protective fortress of the Acropolis. Uh, the soldiers of Persia persisted in their attempts to come and conquer the city um, after Croesus was already killed. And uh, they came and they found an area that was unguarded. And so the people of Sardis, they so believed that their fortress was protected due to these high walls that they weren't even guarding or watchful of this area that was so steep whatsoever. And so the the Persians, they climbed the cliff and uh, one following another until they had enough people up on top of the cliff where they overtook the city. And what's more, there was a very similar event that occurred 200 years later in 218 BC. Uh, The city was being besieged at the gates and a handful of soldiers used ladders and they climbed this unguarded portion of the city, uh, the cliff, and climbed over the wall. And they literally opened the gates um, from inside and allowed the army that was besieging the gate to come in and overtake the city. Uh, So Sardis, even at the time of writing this letter, they already had a history of being comfortable and complacent and being attacked in a stealthy way in an area where they had let their guard down. So let's look at the end of verse 3. We see this description of Jesus coming like a thief if the church at Sardis does not repent. 
This, of course, brings to mind Jesus' description of his return that we read at the end of Matthew 24, uh, verses 42 to 44. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Paul goes on to use the very same metaphor very directly in 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 1 and 2. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, just to be clear, and this is somewhat confusing, Jesus isn't saying that his final return is coming soon if the church at Sardis doesn't repent. Uh, he's not going to make his return contingent on, on their repentance. However, he is using the same imagery to promise a form of judgment upon them if they do not repent. Jesus continually promises that he is coming soon, which brings hope to those who follow him, and it should strike fear for those who have shunned him by rejecting his call. So thinking about this imagery of Jesus as a thief and the history of Sardis that we talked about being sacked twice due to its complacency, it's easy to see that the image that Jesus is trying to conjure up here, he's going to be the one who's climbing up the walls and sneaking into their city when they least suspect it because they have been lulled into thinking that all is well when in reality they're dead. We see here in these verses also our, our second hint about what's go, what was really going on at Sardis. Jesus tells them, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So one further observation that we can make about their state of deadness is that they have incomplete works. James 2.17 says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And James goes on to further explain this in the next verse, in 18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James's point is not that salvation comes by works, but rather that good works follow from a true living faith. The church at Sardis was not carrying out the fullness of the works that God had laid out for them to do. They weren't committing these active sins of heresy and sexual immorality, true, but they were sinning by not acting. We often will call this a sin of omission instead of a sin of commission. We sin when we don't follow through with everything that God has commissioned for us to do. Jesus' assessment of the church at Sardis in this lack of works is that they are dead. But thankfully, Jesus gives the Sardis church a prescription on how to overcome this in these verses also. There's lots of imperative verbs here. Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. The commentators say that the verb wake up is better translated as stay watchful, which of course makes sense when we're thinking about the fact that the city has been sacked twice. The idea of strengthening what remains is probably connected to verse 4, as we'll see later that there's some in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. It seems that there's some in Sardis that Jesus is still holding out hope for, thus another reason why perhaps they're still somewhat alive. 
He calls them also to remember what they have received and heard. And Paul uses similar language when he's talking to the church at Philippi, Philippians 4.9. He says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Trying to call back to mind all the things that they have experienced. The Sardis church has received the Holy Spirit. They have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is calling them here to remember these things, to internalize these things, to allow that knowledge of the gospel to drop from their heads to their hearts. And he tells them to keep it and repent. Repentance is a turning from and a turning toward. The gospel is not simply a gospel of sin management where we live moral lives that look good on the outside. It's a gospel that calls us toward Jesus, to the life here and now in the kingdom of God that he's establishing by building his church through his spirit. Jesus does call us to sacrifice our old lives, to walk away from old sin patterns, to give up our things, our families, our old way of life, to pick up our cross and follow him. But repentance isn't just about saying no to the things of the flesh. It's also about saying yes to Jesus and the life that he's asked us to live for him. It's not simply about emptying, but also about filling. Not just denial, but mission. The people in the church at Sardis weren't carrying out the works that God had asked of them. They had gotten lazy and comfortable, and their faith was not being worked out. So as an application point here, what sins of omission might you be allowing in your life by neglecting God's calling? And the interesting thing is, just like the church at Sardis, we won't even know what these are if we aren't remembering what we have received and heard. We'll be neglecting God's call for our lives as a church and individuals if we're not preaching the gospel to ourselves daily if we're not abiding in his word, if we're not approaching him in prayer continuously. Galatians 5, 25, Paul writes, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Just because we don't have glaring sins that we associate with immorality doesn't mean that we're living a life that glorifies God. We must repent and also turn to him for all of our hope in this life and the next. If you're not abiding daily in Christ, if you're not making the gospel the central part of your existence, repent and turn to him. This is how we live out the calling that Jesus has for us. This is how we walk in the good works that he has prepared beforehand for us, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10. And finally, let's look at point number three, the promise. Look at verses four through six. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out, blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as we reach the end of this letter to Sardis, Jesus does offer some commendation to some people in the church. He says there are some who have not soiled their garments. 
these are those that the church should continue to strengthen because they are what remains and is not dead. Jesus says that they will walk in white. What does this mean to walk in white? I think we can see that if we look uh, deeper into the book of Revelation. Um, Here's two passages to to draw our attention to. Revelation 4.4, just in the next chapter in the throne room scene. Um, It says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So we see some, some symbolism around a white garment with these elders who have been selected. And then perhaps more importantly, we look at Revelation 7. Uh, this is verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then verses 13 and 14 Then one of the elders addressed me, John, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So white garments in the book of Revelation are a sign of saints who have been persecuted, likely even to death but they're resurrected to eternal life with Christ. In that passage in Revelation 7, it even specifically says that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, the the Lydian kingdom and Sardis as its capital, they were known as being some of the most advanced in industry and manufacturing early on in the ancient world. They're known as probably one of the first cities to create gold coins, and to place them into currency due to their ability to purify them and consistently size them. They were also known as one of the first places to dye wools and carpets and to send these out for consumption. Uh, it's possible that this reference to staining garments versus wearing white garments had a uniquely specific cultural meaning to this church at Sardis. They were a city that was very good at staining garments, literally, And apparently much of the church had also been stained spiritually. And that would bring us back to the question of what exactly was going on with the church of Sardis that would warrant Jesus' description of a stained garment. So we've seen two hints already. In the first section, we saw a lack of external and internal threats, yet they were dead. Then we saw in the next section, incomplete works, kind of the sin of omission, And if we step back now and we think about what Jesus has just been saying about the few who have not stained their garments, that they will walk in white, we'll see this last hint that will help us to drive to a conclusion about what was going on at Sardis. So if wearing white robes in the book of Revelation equals persecution, then Jesus is saying here that the few in Sardis who are worthy are going to experience persecution. Maybe they already are. Why would these few experience persecution, but not the rest of the church, the rest of the dead church? We'll look ahead to verse 5, to these promises that Jesus gives to those who are worthy, and I think we'll see our last hint here. He says that they'll be clothed thus in white garments, 
He says they will never have their names blotted out of the book of life. And he says that they will have their names confessed before the Father. So here's the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, 32 and 33. He says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So we hear the positive side of those words echoed in our text today as a promise to those who have been faithful. Jesus will confess their names to the Father. This specific comment here at the end leads me and and many other scholars to believe that the root of the problem for the church at Sardis was a lack of witness. The church was living an upright and a moral life on the surface, but there was no profession of Jesus' name outside of their gathered church. Perhaps they were afraid of the Jews, that they would rat them out to the Romans and bring persecution. Maybe they were just going along with the culture at large. Perhaps they were isolating themselves. Whatever the case, most of the church had soiled themselves by giving in to the belief that they could keep their faith to themselves and not profess Jesus as Lord. Yet there was this remnant that held strong and they spoke boldly and were faithful despite the risk of persecution, which Jesus appears to promise here in his reference to white robes. Just as with the church at Smyrna, the kingdom of God is is upside down, right? Those who are persecuted in this life will be honored in life everlasting. Their destiny looks grim on this earth, but their eternal destiny is secure because their names will never be blotted out of the book of life. There's an old adage, and it's, it's a poor summary of some words of St. Francis of Assisi, and it's uh, honestly a, a misattribution to him, I would say. But the adage says, preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words. And brothers and sisters, I, I think what we can see today is that this is not, that's not our calling in Christ. As we, we've already seen here with these ideas, we don't want to be outwardly claiming to have strong faith and inwardly dying But I think the lesson we can learn from Sardis today is maybe a more poignant one. If we're not proclaiming our faith, then we are dying. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If you're a believer listening today, I think the message we can learn from Sardis is clear. God has equipped each of us as believers through the Holy Spirit to be witnesses for him. You don't have to be a street evangelist or a missionary unless God is calling you to serve in those capacities. But you do have to acknowledge him in all your ways. You do need to be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks for the hope that is within you. You are called to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. These are all signs of a real active faith. Where is God asking you to put this to practice? How do you need to be more open about your faith before the watching world? What would it look like to find a way to intentionally acknowledge the Lord in your life by giving him the glory, maybe, when you talk about your work, your family, or your hobbies? Evangelism is simply sharing your story and how important Jesus is to you. It doesn't require for you to to be an, an apologist, It doesn't require you to be a persuasive speaker, but it does call for courage 
and boldness that comes through the Holy Spirit alone. If you're listening today and you're not a believer in Jesus, if you've never trusted him for all of your hope in this life and the next, I would urge you to, today to stop trying to trust in your own goodness. The city of Sardis thought that they were great and mighty, that all of their works to them were a beautifully dyed, ornate garment. But to God, the only garment that matters in the end is a garment that's been, that has been given from him, that's washed white in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, who died on a Roman cross to pay the penalty that, that we all owed for our sins. And this garment is freely given if we repent and we follow him. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 22 that I think has some good application here for us about this garment. Um, I'll pick up in, in verse 8. He had invited a lot of people, but a lot of people had not come to this wedding feast in this parable. And uh, so then the master says, uh, he says, then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called but few are chosen. Now contrast that with this promise to the faithful at Sardis. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. The wedding supper of the Lamb is coming. You are invited. Will you accept the invitation and follow Jesus? Will you be one of the faithful who confess his name before others? and be clothed in white. Revelation 16:15 Jesus says, "Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed." This life does not last. Jesus will return like a thief in the night. Close with verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.